Well, good morning. It's great to be here with you this morning, and on behalf of my wife, Deanna, and I, we just want to say thanks. Thanks for being the body of Christ for Josh and Shelby, you know, as, as parents, to see, you know, you come around them, embrace them, love them, encourage them in their life, in their marriage, in their ministry, uh, means so much to us. And we had a chance to be there last night as they were opening up their gifts from the shower that you uh, offered to them. Uh, as they embark on this new journey of uh, foster parenting. Um, so just seeing your generosity come around them in this new ministry uh, just means so much. So, so we just want to say thank you for being the body of Christ to them. Well, this morning I want to share with you from Psalm 15. It's a short psalm, but uh, it, packs, it packs a pretty good punch. And I think a pretty important message even for us today as believers in Jesus Christ. It's written thousands of years ago, but God's word is still active and applicable uh, to us today. You know, David begins with this crucial question. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may abide in your, on your holy hill? And I know you guys looked at Psalm 27 uh, just a little bit ago, and David's heart, you know, the one thing I ask, the one thing I pray that I may, that I may dwell in you know, the house of the Lord forever. You know, that was his heart. And so he asked this crucial question. What kind of person can abide with God? And, you know, it is a vital question because every single one of us, will either abide in God's presence forever or we will be removed from God's presence forever. The question is, who can be in God's presence? So I want us to look at David's answer. We'll try to go through this kind of quickly because there's, there's 10 statements that he makes here. Then talk a little bit about the background of Israel, of this psalm. What was the background to, to what David was writing? And then jump ahead to us today as, as believers in Jesus Christ today. So what kind of person? First of all, a person whose walk is blameless. This phrase describes a person who is without blemish. A person who invites the presence of God into, into all areas of their life and allows his word and his, his holiness to, to, to impact those areas. You know, our, Greek, our English word sincere comes from two Greek words, sign and, and sincera, which means no wax. Okay, a life with no wax. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Well, it comes from the, the marketplace of, of a potter. And when a potter would, would put his, his works into the kiln, sometimes they would crack. There would be imperfections. So a, an unscrupulous potter would take wax, fill in those cracks, paint it like it's a good piece of pottery, and try to sell it. That would be an insincere piece of pottery and an insincere potter. But if you were a wise person, you would take that piece of pottery and you would hold it up to the sunlight. Because that sunlight would come through the wax. And you would see that it was not what it was being advertised for. What happens when our life is lifted up to the holiness of God? Jesus had some of his most direct words to the Pharisees, right? 
Because on the outside, they looked clean, but he says on the inside, it doesn't match. It wasn't sincere. Secondly, a person who makes right choices. You know, we are faced with choices every day. And some of those involve either right or doing what is wrong. Choices motivated by love or choices motivated by selfishness. Will we compromise? Kind of like that the prayer said. Will we give in? Now, years ago, we took the, the kids to the Denver Zoo, and, and Joshua and Michaela actually bought stuffed animals. And uh, Deanna had to pay for it with the credit card because they didn't have their cash with them. And so when she came out of the store, the gift shop, and she was looking at the receipt with a little kind of confused look on her face, and it looked like they both only added up to 13. It should have been a lot more. You know, what should we do? And so I looked at it, and, and it come to find out Joshua's gift was, was the UPC thing messed up, and it was only $3 instead of $13. So we didn't pay enough. It's like, what do you do? What's the right choice? No, that split second, you're like, well, hey, they messed up. It's their fault. Too bad for them. Let's go to the elephants. But how much is a, being a person who does what is right worth? Is it worth $10? Is it worth $1,000? Doing what is right? There was a man who bought a couch from a Habitat, human, uh, Habitat for Humanity thrift shop. And he got it home and they started using it, you know, his family. And they kind of like, well, it's not quite comfortable. What, what's the deal? And eventually it bothered him so much he started taking it apart, opening up the cushions. And inside he found thousands of dollars inside the cushion. Yay, kachinga, Right? He thought to himself, what's the right thing to do? So he called Habitat for Humanity back, the, the shop, and said, hey, this couch has got a significant amount of money in it. Who did it come from? Who does it belong to? Come to find out, this older man had it, and he just kind of kept stuffing this money in there. And when he passed away, his family didn't know about it. And they didn't need this couch, and so they donated it to Habitat for Humanity. So they found the family, and... And it was part of their inheritance, really. I mean, it belonged to them. And he made the right choice. What about you? <laughs> what about me? Make right choices. Because sometimes it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to make that, that right choice. How much is being a person who makes a right choice work? Worth. David would say it's priceless. Being able to be in the presence of God. Number three, a person who, who is honest. Who speaks the truth from his heart. And that's crucial because that's why Jesus said all our words one day will be judged. Why? Because they are a reflection of what's coming from the heart. Sometimes it's hard to speak the truth, right? Right? Sometimes we want to kind of bend it a little bit. We want to exaggerate, make ourselves look a little better, or hide things that, that we don't want people to know. I drove a school bus for uh, a number of years, and uh, the rule on the school bus was no eating, right? Were, kids weren't supposed to eat, but every now and then I'd start finding wrappers <laughs> under the seat and wedged into the seat, you know, in between in the back. You know, it's amazing. 
It's amazing how heavy those wrappers must be that, that the kids can't bring it to the front into the garbage on the way out. I mean, those wrappers must be so heavy. They can't do it. So eventually it gets so bad I'd have to stop, stop, you know, confront it. It was coming from this area of the bus. Who's eating the food on the bus and putting all these wrappers on the ground? And, oh, man, it's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing to look on their face and the anguish these little hearts are wrestling with. Do I tell the truth or don't I? But even for us as adults, it's hard. It's hard sometimes to tell the truth when it's difficult. Psalm 12, 22, the Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in men who are truthful, who may dwell in his presence. Four, a person who speaks gracefully. So not only do you use your words to speak the truth, but you use your words to build up, to encourage instead of tear down. So he says, and has no slander on his tongue or casts no slur on his fellow man. What does that include? Gossiping? Passing on a rumor about someone? Calling someone a negative name? Either to their face or behind their back? Taking someone basically who's been created in the image of God and pretty much dragging them through the mud. How often, as parents and as bus driver, I say, you know, if you can't say something nice about someone, what? Don't say anything at all. If you can't say someone nice, if you can't say something positive, just don't open their mouth. Psalm 10 18 to 19, whoever spreads slander is a fool. When words are many, sin is not absent. But he who holds his tongue is wise. You know, I'm amazed, you know, after 30 years of being in a ministry setting, being in the secular work setting, how, uh, wow, how, how prevalent it is about talking about fellow employees and putting them down and putting their work down and talking them behind their back. It's easy to get wrapped up in that, especially when you, you want to make yourself look good. Who can dwell on God's holy hill? Five, a person who is a, a good neighbor. This is the state farm verse. Um, a person who is a good neighbor, who does his neighbor no wrong. This could be a physical neighbor, someone who actually lives near you. Maybe someone who, who works next to you in the cubicle. Maybe at school, they're in the locker next to you. You know, basically someone that you uh, rub shoulders with who does his neighbor no wrong. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure if we kind of take a poll today, some of us live next to some challenging people. Maybe work next to some challenging people. Maybe go to school next to some challenging people. Sometimes we call those people EGR, extra grace required. And you know, if you can't think of someone in your life like that, Maybe it's you. <laughs> Jesus said in Matthew 22, the, the greatest commandment, what? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your strength and your mind. And what's the second? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. I read a story about uh, some people in California. They were building their houses. And one ended up building their house too high. But, but the impact of that was because the neighbor, the other neighbor, lost their view that they had. 
You know, they had a great view, but now this person actually built their house higher than code, and there became a fight and an argument and then a lawsuit. I mean, this person eventually had to take lower their house. But when they did, they redid some things, and they put a shutter facing the neighbor's house, a shutter on their wall in the shape of an obscene hand gesture. That's how bad. Love your neighbor. No, no. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who does his neighbor no wrong? Six, a person who hates evil. says despises a vile man. And in the culture, a vile man was someone who, who knew what was right. I mean, this wasn't someone who just kind of made a mistake or messed up every now and then. But, the, you know, they knew what was right. And they were really rebelling against God's holiness and his character and the law. And, and they just, you know, didn't care. You know, just evil, sinfulness, just the epitome of it, just oozing out of their life. And, you know, this is, this, is, this is a challenging verse for us today because our culture continues to move away from how God had created things and from his law and from his holiness. And the question is, what is, you know, what is our reaction? What, what happens in, in our hearts when we see that? I mean, we need to be reminded that God, God hates sin. But, but why does God hate sin? Because sin always destroys. Sin always promises happiness, but it never delivers. Instead, you end up empty and shame and guilt-filled. Now, sin never delivers. What sin does is it, it takes the good that God has given us and it warps it. And it always brings harm. And so that's why God hates sin. And that's why we should hate sin. Because of what it does. And even when it rears its ugly head in our life. How do you react? You know, David had made some pretty sinful choices. And I'm not sure where they landed in comparison to when he wrote this psalm. But he made some really poor choices. But the question is, at the end, did he own up to it as he was confronted and come to God? And, and I think maybe in, in the past you guys have looked at Psalm 51 where it is his confession of sinning before God. Where he sees the damage that is done. On the flip side of that, number seven, a person who honors the godly, who honors those who fear the Lord. And again, like I say, it's going to be harder and harder to stand up for what is right. It's going to be harder and harder to stand up for what is righteous when our culture continues to slide away. And when that happens, people get rejected for those who do try to stand up get rejected. We live in a cancel culture, right? Cancel them. Harassed. Eventually persecuted. Paul said everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. And we've been spared for the most part for that. But we're heading that direction. Are we willing to stand up for what is right? And are we willing to stand up and encourage and honor those who are maybe more on the forefront. It's easy to just kind of stay in the back, right, and hide when, when they're getting the things thrown at them. But do we encourage them? Pray for them. 
in high school, I, I became a believer in my junior year in high school, and there was a group of us that started a Bible study, and, and, and we wanted to challenge each other to start carrying our Bibles to, to school. You know, n not be obnoxious, you know, not in people's faces, but just, you know, bring it there. We were encouraging each other to memorize it and just, you know, have it there. This is part of our life. And at that time, I was, I was dating a girl. Sorry, Dad, Deanna, to mention this, this bass. But, you know, Danny, who was a believer, but, but when I started doing that, she kind of pulled me aside one time. She said, you know what, that's really embarrassing. You know, she encouraged me not to do that. Because sometimes it's hard when you face that rejection or it's just awkward. But are we the kind of people who will encourage and honor those who are fearing the Lord? Eight, a person who keeps his promise. So you keep your promises, even when it's hard, when it's difficult, when it's costly, inconvenient. There was an event up in uh, Nisswa, Minnesota. Did I say that right, Michelle? Nisswa, she's from Minnesota. They were having a charity golf fundraiser. And so there was this guy at an E-Free church, the Journey E-Free church, named Fred, Fred Booz, who, uh, who was going to go to this charity fundraiser. And he told the pastor, you know, there was a contest. If you got a hole-in-one, there was like a serious prize for this hole-in-one. So he told the pastor, you know, I'm going to try to get that hole-in-one. And if I do, I'm going to give the prize to the church. So the pastor thought, okay. At the sermon time, he said, hey, Fred's going to go to this charity. We're going to pray for him that he gets this hole-in-one. So the church prayed for him. Well, lo and behold, on the sixth hole, par three, Fred tees up, hits it right before the hole, bloop, 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 bink, and falls in, sinks it. The prize was $5,000. I mean, if you were Fred, you were like, oh, oh, maybe I thought, you know, 20 bucks, you know, 100 bucks. $5,000. You know, maybe I'll give just some of it. To the... He made the promise, made the commitment, gave it all to the church. $5,000. A man who keeps his promise. Why is that important to God? Because God keeps his promises. He is a God who keeps his promises. Nine, one who cares even when it costs. This verse talks about someone who lends his money without usury. So, you know, in a situation, you know, they didn't have banks back then, but if someone was going through a hardship and, and they were at the threat of losing their farm, they couldn't pay their, you know, pay their bills, support their family, but it was okay to loan money to each other. But all of a sudden, you know, someone you know, gets a little greedy in their heart. He's like, hey, this is an opportunity take advantage and so they would you know just raise up exorbitant amount of interest because this person was desperate and they, they would take advantage of this person have you ever heard the phrase what's in it for me that's kind of what this is about what's in it for me how can i make a big bang for this buck here off of this person who's really struggling that is not a heart that has been impacted by god 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, 
how can the love of God be in him? And lastly, someone who does not use his power or her power or position for really personal gain. It says, does not accept bribe against the innocent. So you would have a situation where people would be in power, right? They would be the judges. They would make decisions. And sinful people would be, bring accusations against those who were, who were really innocent. Take advantage of them. And these position, people who were in positions of power would, would get offered bribes to make decisions favorable for the person who was sinful. And what would you do? That does not, again, reflect the heart of those who want to honor the innocent. The person who keeps his promise, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. So as you hear this list, what's your reaction? I mean, some of us may be like, yes. He didn't talk about the thing that I really struggle with, right? He didn't cover that thing there in my life. But probably most of us are like, feel a little weighty when you hear this psalm. Because we know we've all, we've all messed up. As a matter of fact, if you read Psalm 15, David writes, There is no one who does what is righteous. There is no one who makes right choices, who is blameless. Paul echoes this in Romans chapter 3. So the, what is the background of this psalm? What was the purpose of this in their life? Well, first of all, to, to, to remind them that God is holy. That God is holy. And he calls his people to be holy. And his laws were a reflection of his holy character that he wanted to to become part of their life and in their hearts. There's a great verse, Exodus 19. Right before God gave them the law, he says this, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I mean, that is a picture of God's grace, right? It wasn't anything they did. It was God who rescued them, brought them to himself. But it says, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possessions. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Right? As they reflected his holiness, they were to be a holy nation. If you go through the psalm, this really is a psalm that describes God. God is blameless. He does what is right. He uses his words to build up. He does not lie. He is faithful. He is kind to the poor. This is really a description of God, which they were to represent to one another and to the surrounding nations. But as they read this psalm, they were also to, to be reminded of this. God provided grace for their failures. God provided grace. One of the most significant declarations of God about himself is found in Exodus 34, 6, and then repeated a number of times throughout the Old Testament. 
And this is right after Israel failed significantly with the golden calf, if you remember that story. And this is it. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands. And listen to this, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? What is one of the things they did when they went to the sanctuary? I mean, I think as they were going to the tabernacle first and then eventually the temple, making their way, I think this psalm was a great thing for them to read and to kind of evaluate their life. Well, what if they had messed up? One of the things they did when they went to the tabernacle or to the temple was bring an offering. One of the things they celebrated was the day of Passover when the priest would bring the blood of an animal into the Holy of Holies, where there was the Ark of the Covenant, right? Which was also called the Mercy Seat. And he, there he would pour the blood out, and that would be a covering on their sins. So they would be reminded of God's grace and forgiveness. But it came at a cost, the price of that animal. The life of the animal, which obviously we know now was a beautiful picture of Christ and what he would do. But what I find so amazing is that where the Ark of the Covenant was, was called the Holy of Holies, right? This was God's presence on earth, and it was in the holy area. But it was also called the mercy seat. The very intersection of God's holiness and his mercy together. It's a beautiful picture. But lastly, God provided grace, not only for their forgiveness and their failures, but for their obedience. Sometimes we think the Old Testament saints, they had no chance, right? I mean, they could never obey. That's not true. I mean, listen to this word from from Moses as he spoke to them before he passed away. As he had given them the law, right, God's word. He he, he writes this in Deuteronomy 30, 11. Now, what I'm commanding to you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you can ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it so that we may obey it, nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to, who's going to cross the sea to get it? No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so you may obey it. He says, I've given you God's word so that you may obey. And as they spoke God's word, as they hid God's word in their heart as they they talked about it with their kids in the morning and in the evening and as they went throughout their day. You know, God's word was was to empower them to obey. Psalm 19 shares uh, that, that it is God's word that revives the soul. It makes wise the simple. It gives joy to the heart and light to the eyes so that in keeping it, there is great reward. Which is why this psalm ends. He who does these things will never be shaken. 
Jesus said, if you build your life upon his words, when the storm comes, your house will stand. Because it's built on the holy character of God, which there is strength. So God gave them his word, and that word was to empower them to obey. So what about us today? It's pretty much the same thing. The New Testament application, as we, as we years later look back at this psalm, the message is really the same. We are reminded of God's holiness. And you know what? Today we need to be reminded of God's holiness. Because it's getting harder and harder as our culture says, you know what? It, it really doesn't matter what you say. I mean, it just kind of matters, you know, what I think is right. And you do what you think is right, right? I mean, this it's really not new. At the end of the book of Judges, if you read, it says that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's kind of where we're heading, isn't it? Everybody just do what's right in your eyes. There's no moral standard. There's no moral absolutes that we can anchor our life too, if, if we listen to the message of the culture, that's a, it's a matter of opinion, or the latest poll, polls, or even the latest laws, which we know cannot always reflect God's righteousness. And so today we are reminded, and we need to be reminded, that God is holy. And he calls us to be holy. But we too celebrate God's grace. To make us holy. Which is what we do celebrating communion in just a minute. See, the gospel tells us that Jesus lived the righteous life. If you would hold Jesus up to Psalm 15, he lived it perfectly. He was honest. His words spoke the truth, built others up. He never took bribes. He walked blamelessly, sincere, right? And the beauty of his, on the cross, Jesus offers that life to us. Not only does he take away our sins of how we have failed Psalm 15, but he offers us his life of, of perfect obedience to Psalm 15. Paul writes this in Colossians 1. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. Without blemish and free from accusation. As if you have perfectly obeyed Psalm 15. That it is through Jesus Christ. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, it, God made him who, who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So the question is, who may go on the holy hill? Who may abide with God? Those who have allowed Jesus to make them holy. Those who have allowed Jesus to take away their sins from them. Does that describe you this morning? 
maybe you've really blown it. I mean, you look at Psalm 15 and you're like, nope, 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 nope. <laughs> you go down the whole list. No, it doesn't matter. Because in the end, if you embrace Jesus, that's all gone. Jesus is willing to take all that away and cover you with his own righteousness. So if God looks at you, he no longer sees all that. He sees the righteousness of his son. That is the beauty of the gospel that we celebrate today. The beauty of God's grace. And you know what? It's at the cross, just like at the mercy seat in the Old Testament. It's at the cross where on one hand we are reminded of the holiness of God because that's what led to the cross. Because Jesus had to come and he met the holiness of God. But it's at that cross that is also the mercy seat of God where we find his mercy of forgiveness and making us holy. And lastly, we are reminded of God's grace for us to now pursue holiness. I mean, sometimes as believers, we celebrate God's grace. Hey, I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven. But we also need to remember that that grace, that same grace, is now to empower us to live holy lives. So I love Titus. This verse up there. Titus 2, 11, it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Right? We celebrate that. But listen, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope of the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. To redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. Eager to do what is good. Empowered now to do what is good. To be able to live Psalm 15 because of his presence in our life. God's grace that he has given us to pursue holiness. We won't have time to cover all these, but the, let me just cover them quickly. And then you can look at these verses up. But God's grace is the gift of his word. The same word empowers us to pursue holiness. God's grace is the gift of a new nature. And that's something the Old Testament people didn't have. But we know that in Christ we are given a new nature. And it's God's very nature, his holy nature, that empowers us to now pursue holiness. God's grace is the gift of his spirit, who is called the what? The Holy Spirit. Not only because that defines him, but that's his purpose in our life, to make us holy. And the gift of the church to encourage us and to challenge us and to teach us to chase after Jesus and to chase after holiness. 1 Timothy 6, but you, man of God, woman of God, flee from all this, all kinds of evil, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Pursue righteousness. Pursue godliness. 
So this morning as we celebrate communion, you can come up and, and uh, as the music is playing, come take the elements. And there's a couple options there. One, the gluten-free option if, if you need that for dietary reasons or the individual cups. Or if you're comfortable taking from the loaf and pulling from that and taking the, the cup, uh, you can come and celebrate communion. But that's what we're celebrating this morning. We're celebrating God's holiness. He is an amazing God. And one day we will join the angels in heaven and we will sing holy, holy, holy as we gaze upon the beauty of God and of Christ in spirit. We also celebrate his grace, forgiveness of our failures when we have him pursued holiness. But we also celebrate his grace now that we can Pursue holiness in Christ. For Peter says, God has given us everything we need for godliness. And so as you're preparing to come, I ask you, have you embraced Jesus and his offer of grace to you? But also as, as you read this psalm and, and as we reflect on this psalm, it should expose maybe some areas in our life that we need to be reminded, God, I need your forgiveness. Thank you that I have this forgiveness in Christ. Will you empower me now because of your grace in my life to have victory over that area and to pursue holiness that I might reflect your character and your grace to all that are watching. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning that we can gather together and, and particularly gather around your word and, and uh and Lord, we thank you that you are an amazing, gracious God. That although you are holy and that we deserve to be separated from you forever. That we deserve to experience your wrath upon our sin and our rebellion. And how we have rejected you in so many ways. That you have poured out your love for us in Christ. That you have shown us your grace. And Lord Jesus, we just celebrate you today that you were willing to come and to live a righteous life for us. And then to die on the cross, such a horrible death, to take upon God's wrath for us so that you might provide us forgiveness of sins and offer us your righteousness. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone today who has not yet embraced you, that today would be the day that they would see your holiness and their sinfulness in the right light and their need for Jesus. And today, through faith, embrace you and this gift of forgiveness, this gift of righteousness. And Lord, for all of us as believers, that we would once again gaze upon your holiness be reminded of your call for us to pursue holiness, but also celebrate that you have provided everything we need to do that through your grace in Christ Jesus. Lord, we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.